Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer Church. My name is Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my pleasure to worship with you today, even though we're not together in the building. We are getting closer to that time when we will be back in our facility, but there are several things that still need to happen to make this transition safe for all the folks in our congregation. Um, You should be receiving a letter this week or have already received it that gives you more details related to the reopening. Today I especially like to welcome anyone who is visiting with us online for the very first time. We're very glad that you have joined us. I have been amazed these last few months to discover that there are folks who have not traditionally been part of our worshiping congregation that that are finding us online and tune in each weekend. And I want you to know that it takes courage to do that. You never know what you're getting yourself into. But the deal here at Redeemer is that we try our best to make it easy for us to discover what God is really like. There are plenty of ideas out there in the culture about what God is like, but we believe that Jesus knows better than anyone else. And so we should let him tell us who God is and what God is like. And we do that each week by, dis- by exploring what the Bible has to say to us. And then what we find is a God who is loving and kind, a God who likes us and cares about us greatly. I grew up mostly thinking that God was pretty annoyed with us and that I would never measure up to whatever standards he had for me. And so I'll tell you that if that's your view of God, why would you come to church? Who wants a God like that? I know I didn't. So half the battle is discovering what God is really like. And it's a willingness to say to ourselves, maybe I've gotten him wrong. And a willingness to be open to allowing the image of God to be reshaped in us by Jesus. This morning we're going to discover something about God, but you've got to hang in there until the very end of the message. We have a little traveling to do before we get to that destination, but I promise you that it'll be worth it. On another note altogether, many of you already know that my mother, who was 94 years old and living in a senior care facility in Grand Rapids, contracted the COVID-19 virus a few weeks ago and passed away on May 28th. She was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and she is at home with her Lord, and we're doing okay, but I want to take a moment to just thank you, the congregation, for all of the prayers and the cards and the calls that came our way, sharing your love during this difficult time. Every expression of kindness has been very much appreciated and gave us a sense of God's peace and strength when we needed it most. Now, the message this morning is entitled, Decisions Determine Destiny. Today's uh, text is found in the Old Testament book of Esther. The events described in this book happened B.C. That means before the birth of Jesus. Everything from the time Jesus was born and afterward is found in the New Testament scripture. This book of Esther is close to being one of the last books written during the Old Testament period. It describes some things that happened in the lives of a group of Jewish people who were at the time living in the kingdom of Persia, which today is Iran, in about 475 B.C. The first chapter of Esther opens with this huge party being thrown by King Xerxes to rally the troops to go to war against Greece. We talked about this last week. He throws a party that is 180 days long. 
And at the end of it, he summons his queen so that he can parade her beauty before the troops. And she is having nothing to do with it. So chapter 1 ends with Xerxes being embarrassed. He's trying to flex his mighty power before his army. And in front of them all, he is shown up uh, by his queen. He's not even able to impress his wife. And so he banishes her from his presence. Now, chapter 2 could well be called the first version of the TV show, The Bachelorette, because Xerxes takes it upon himself to gather the most beautiful virgins in the whole kingdom into his harem, and he sleeps with woman after woman until he finds one that is worthy of becoming his next queen. Esther is one of those women. She is a Jewish girl, though she keeps that part of her identity a secret, and she wins this demeaning abuse of power, and her prize is that she gets to marry this disgusting, brutal, murderous human being. And we pick up the story in the last paragraph of chapter 2. Today we're going to look at various characters in this story and watch them as they make decisions in their life. I heard it once said that our decisions determine our destiny, and I think that's a pretty powerful axiom we're thinking about. Our decisions determine our destiny. Today I want to look at the decisions these characters make and try to discern what motivated their decisions. And then we'll see how these decisions turned out for them. The first characters in this story today are a couple of eunuchs. And we learned in the previous chapter that Mordecai is Queen Esther's uncle. He raised her as a daughter because her parents died when she was young. Listen to what Esther chapter 2 verse 21 tells us. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, <clears throat> became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. Decisions determine destiny. These two men plotted. They decided to, to assassinate the king. And you may be asking, what motivated that? Let me point out the word eunuch. History records for us that King Xerxes was not only cruel to the women he stole for his harem, he was cruel to hundreds of boys who he forcibly castrated to assure that none of his attendants would be able to engage in sexual activity with the king's concubines. Now, I think it's not difficult to wonder why these two men, their life forever changed by, as young boys by the king, <clears throat> might decide to exact their revenge. These two men were motivated by revenge to plot a murder. Verse 22, but Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. Now, there's some debate here about whether these men were impaled or, in fact, crucified. The Persians invented crucifixion. It was later perfected by the Romans. The Persians killed people in every way imaginable. But without question, these two were hung up on a pole. So the first decision we see is the decision of these eunuchs to assassinate the king, motivated by revenge. And their decision determined their fate. And it was a gruesome death. Now on to chapter 3. Verse 1. 
Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. Now enter the villain of the book of Esther. It's Haman. King Xerxes had wise counselors all around him, and only these seven men were allowed to enter the king's presence without being summoned. They were some of the highest officials in the land, and Haman is promoted to the highest of the seven. He is the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He is powerful but not widely respected. And how do I know that? Notice that the only reason that people pay him any respect is because the king has ordered it. He has not earned the respect of the people. It's commanded. And it's not that big of a deal. Culturally, this would have been completely used, people would have been completely used to this kind of thing. Like a curtsy in England when the royal family shows up or a salute in the military for someone of a higher rank just because uh, it's something you do. You respect the rank, even if you might not respect the person. Well, Mordecai is, for some reason, completely obstinate about this. Verses 2 through 4. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told him that he was a Jew. So here's Mordecai, who for some reason refuses to show respect to Haman. It's weird that all of a sudden he gets worked up about this one thing. Notice he's not drawing a line in the sand about the king taking his daughter into his bedroom. He isn't drawing the line with Esther about eating non-Jewish foods or sleeping with Gentile murderers outside of wedlock, but a simple gesture of respect. It's never going to happen. So what's going on here? I think we find a hint in the way the author introduces us to Haman. Haman the Agagite. So what's an Agagite? Strictly speaking, Agag was a king of the Amalekites during the reign of King Saul many years before. And you're thinking, so what? Well, the Amalekites were officially the oldest enemies of the nation of Israel. The Amalekites were the first people ever to try to wipe out the nation of Israel all the way back in Exodus chapter 17. If you've read through the first few books of the Bible, you might remember the story about the Israelites fighting a battle one day, and from the top of the hill, overlooking the valley where the battle is being fought, Moses is holding up his arms. And as long as he holds his arms up, the Israelites are winning. But if he gets tired and his arms drop, then the Amalekites are winning. Now fast forward here in Persia. Not only was Mordecai never rewarded for saving King Xerxes' life, but Xerxes has now promoted his arch enemy. Our decisions determine our destiny. Mordecai is filled with contempt for Haman, and he decides to publicly show that, uh, display that disrespect toward this Amalekite, a Jew. Bowing down before an Amalekite was never going to happen. The result, as we will soon read, will be more devastating than 
Mordecai could have ever imagined, a death sentence to all the Jews in the kingdom. You see, contempt is a dangerous thing because it leads us to rob another person of their dignity and worth. Content skewers our perception of other people and makes them less than human. Contempt and anger and rage and all of those emotions easily intermingle and cause untold harm. Contempt causes Mordecai to put his own life at risk rather than concede the point to this bitter foe. And what Mordecai doesn't realize is that contempt always breeds more contempt. His small action of not showing respect will lead Haman to a ridiculous level of contempt once he learns that Mordecai is Jewish. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Haman thinks to himself, hey, you picked a fight with the wrong Amalekite, Mordecai. Don't you realize who I am? It's amazing, really, that here's a guy who's the second most powerful man in the land. He has everything, and yet that's not enough. One guy, a nobody really, insults his greatness, and it totally sets him off. In fact, it makes him crazy with rage. He has the power to kill, and he isn't satisfied with just killing Mordecai. He thinks, I'm going to finish the job my ancestors started. I will completely wipe these Jews off the face of the earth. And you know, there may have been a point in time when we might have read that and thought, yeah, right. Who would be delusional enough and wicked enough to hatch a plan to wipe an entire people group off the face of the earth? But we don't think that way anymore, do we? In our own age, we've seen Hitler attempt somewhat the same thing. We've seen this exact thing play out in Rwanda in the 90s. In Bosnia, in Sudan, in Somalia, in more recent years, the government of Myanmar was charged with massacring multitudes of Muslims. And Christians and Yazidis have been slaughtered by the thousands in Iraq and Syria. It's really sad to see this story played out virtually nonstop in our world. One group of people filled with contempt for another group, willing to kill without even feel liking they're killing another human being. And if we were trying to measure the depth of wickedness that lies within the human heart, I wonder how deep it would go. I'm afraid we would never hit bottom. So with that being said, let me ask you the question, who would you eliminate if you had the power to get away with it? Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked who really knows how bad it is. Our decisions determine our destiny. Here Haman, who's motivated by pride and hatred, decides to take it upon himself to slaughter an entire race of people. And we will see in later chapters that this decision will come back on him and will lead to his own death. Haman, of course, needs to get the king to sign off on this plan first. How will he convince the king? Well, very simply, by appealing to his greed. Look at verse 8. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from anyone else. 
Their laws are different from those of other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 sacks of silver, large sacks of silver, to the government administrators to be, to be deposited in the royal treasury. Now, Haman is rather selective in his information, isn't he? He says there is a race of people. He neglected to tell Xerxes that the race was mostly one person. And he neglected to tell the king that the, law they were, the laws they were neglecting was just one law in particular, that they should bow down and pay respect to Haman. But Haman knows how to manipulate the king. He knows what will get the king's attention in its 10,000 large sacks of silver. Look at verse 10. The king agreed, confirming his decision. The money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. In other words, as long as that money ends up in the royal treasury, do what you want. At this point, Xerxes' treasury has been depleted because of his uh, devastating war with Greece. And so motivated by greed and being lazy and uninterested, he shrugs his shoulder and, and okays the extermination of the Jewish people. What started out as one guy uh, showing contempt for another has now escalated. Mordecai thought he might be putting himself at risk by showing such disdain toward this Amalekite, but he never imagined that his scorn would lead to the most powerful nation on earth going to war against his own people. Skip down to verse 15. At the king's command, the decree went out to the swift, by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa, the capital city. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So here's the king and Haman, like two businessmen after closing a big deal, sitting down and having a drink to celebrate. And for 10,000 sacks of silver, Xerxes is buying so how does the king's decision play out among the people? Well, the people are confused. These Jews are our neighbors. Our kids play together. What in the world's going on? And the result of the king's sinful, greedy decision is that his power over his people is further degraded. And it's not playing well with the masses. How far Xerxes has fallen since his introduction in chapter 1? When the one who called himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords put on a 180-day celebration of his majesty and his splendor and his glory. Since then, his wife embarrassed him. He loses a war. His eunuchs plot his death. He decrees the death of innocent people in, the, in his kingdom. And people are beginning to grumble. Don't miss this important point. Sin has a disintegrating effect on all of us. The real you will eventually make its way front and center. And when the real you is as evil and easily manipulated as Xerxes, you can be sure that it's not going to end well. In fact, in 465 BC, the commander of the royal bodyguards, one of the most trusted advisors that Xerxes had, saw Xerxes for who he really was, and he assassinated him with the help of another eunuch. So the eunuchs finally get their revenge. Decisions determine destiny. Xerxes' decision to approve Haman's plan was motivated by greed and would eventually contribute to his own death. 
quite a story, but it sums up our humanity, doesn't it? People motivated by revenge and pride and greed and rage and contempt and anger and corruption, plotting destruction and death and pain. How many articles in the headlines of the news this week will be about people in power motivated by revenge, by pride, anger, and rage? How much destruction will be uh, unleashed in our own nation by greed, anger, rage, and contempt? And who will free us from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Before we finish today, notice that there is yet another character hidden in the pages of this story. And there is a hero hidden in plain sight. We talked last week about how Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned anywhere in the book. And yet the hero of the book is God himself, who is behind the scenes. Or as we said last week, behind what can be seen. He is working all the time. He's hidden in plain sight. Let me show you where the author cleverly alludes to God without ever mentioning him. He shows up in chapter 3. We skipped over the part where the details of Haman's plot are written, but check out verse 12. So on the t- April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. Now, what a weird, specific detail. Why so specific? Well, here's the deal. The translators of Esther decided to do everyone a favor by translating the Hebrew calendar into our calendar. They went back in time and looked up the date and said, oh, that would be equivalent to April 17th. See, the Hebrews didn't use our calendar. In fact, they used a lunar calendar. So what's so specific about this, uh, this detail? Here's why. It's, it, it doesn't say April 17th, 474 B.C. In Hebrew, it says, on the 13th day of the first month. What does that mean to you and me? Well, unless you're Jewish, maybe nothing. But if, you're, if we were Jewish, we would know that it's the eve of the Passover. Check out Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5. The Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. What is Passover? It's the celebration of God rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus, we read that after nine increasingly severe plagues, Pharaoh is is still refusing to allow the Israelites, whom he has enslaved, to leave his country. So God plays out one final judgment where he unleashes the angel of death on the land and the firstborn son of every family would be taken from them. However, the Israelites were instructed to take a lamb, spotless, to signify innocence, to slay the lamb for the sins of the people. And the blood of the lamb placed over their doors would signal the angel to pass over their home. And so the idea of a lamb dying so that others might live becomes part of Israel's history, part of their religious system. And year after year, a lamb was slain in memory of God's protection and his people as the Jews celebrated Passover. And year after year and century after century, lambs were slain at the Passover time and in the temple until one day everything changed. It was a day when John the Baptist looked across the Jordan River and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Decisions determine destiny. And the decision I want to highlight now is Jesus' decision to lay down his life as the Lamb of God. 
motivated by his love for us in order to provide forgiveness for us and make it possible for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. The result of that decision is life, life for you and for me. The eunuchs, Mordecai, Haman, Xerxes, all of them were plotting death and destruction and hatred and scorn and strife. Motivated by what? Motivated by pride, jealousy, hatred, greed, and corruption. The story of Esther is the story of our humanity. How much of our humanity has been scarred by greed, by corruption, by anger, rage, contempt, hatred, bitterness, and revenge? This is the story of humanity. No wonder the Bible calls this world a kingdom of darkness. How much of our world has been scarred by people's decisions who were motivated by selfishness and by greed and jealousy and pride and scorn and contempt? How much of our world has been shaped by these things? And how much have we contributed to those things? But into all of this mess steps the hero, Jesus the Lamb of God, who willingly lays down his life in order to give whoever desires forgiveness and a fresh start in life. Jesus is motivated by love. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Xerxes is the kind of king who routinely hung people on crosses to demonstrate his power Jesus is the kind of king who puts himself on a cross to demonstrate his love. Decisions determine destiny. Jesus' decision, motivated by love, was to be our substitute so that we might be able to become a new kind of human being. And here's where this last decision comes in. Remember, our decisions determine our destiny. And the last decision is yours. God treats us with dignity and respect, and he offers us not a decree but an invitation. He invites us to humble ourselves and to admit we need forgiveness and a fresh start in life. Some of you who are hearing this message today are sitting on the fence, and you're welcome to stay there, especially if you're in that phase of your spiritual journey where you aren't sure if you're buying into this stuff yet. You have some legitimate uh, obstacles to faith. And we get that, and we respect you for investigating. But when you're ready to get off the fence, the greatest decision that you will ever make is to plant both of your feet in the kingdom of God, the place where God becomes a partner with us in life. And together we begin to look at others differently, and we begin to love others differently, and we're transformed from the inside out. And you can make that decision right now as I close in prayer. If you're ready, your decision will determine your destiny. And when you think highly enough of Jesus to trust him with your life, then you are destined for an abundant and confident life in the kingdom of God, the God who promises to protect us and provide for us all the days of our life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the Son of the living God who came down from heaven to reveal the Father's love to us by suffering and dying for our sins. We believe that through your death and resurrection, you have brought redemption and life not only to us, but also to anyone who believes in you. We further believe that it is only through knowing you in a loving and personal relationship that we can know the Father. 
Lord, it's because we have this burning desire to know you and abide in you that we now yield ourselves completely to you and to your love. And we open the door of our heart so that you can come in and begin that special relationship with us, the one for which you died and the one for which we hunger. At this moment, we yield ourselves to your love. So enter in, activate our spirits with your Holy Spirit so that we can go beyond just mere intellectual belief in you to a personal, spiritual relationship with you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.